inform that there's one other person in this room who really wants us to know it's their birthday, and that's Julia McInerney. And so she turns 16 today. Yes. Also, baby Maserick is back here. Um, Steven and Shayla had their baby, which is very cool. There's all kinds of wonderfulness in here. Um, so as Rach said, we are at the end of the Advent season. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout Advent is that Advent starts in the dark. And that comes from Fleming Rutledge, who's a great theologian, uh, who wrote a book about the Advent season and has really helped the church return to an appropriate observation of what Advent is meant to be, which we think of, uh, and Advent is, you know, sort of populated the Christmas season. And we think of the Christmas season as this cheery, happy, clappy, joy, 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 um, have you caught the Christmas spirit, all that kind of stuff. Whereas in the history of the church, Advent is actually meant to be a season that um, pauses to reflect upon the, the darkness that's around us, the suffering, the pain, the loss, the, the grief that's around us, not just to be a bummer, to be a bummer's sake, but in order to fully embrace the need for the light that then dawns with Christmas and with the coming of Christ into the world. And so we've said in any number of ways throughout this series that we've been going through in the book of Isaiah, that we only properly acknowledge, celebrate, embrace the light if we first take seriously, understand, embrace, acknowledge the darkness that's around us and maybe most difficultly, the, the darkness that's within us. And so um, that might be a little bit of a different note to strike for you around Christmas, but that is what church history says is right and appropriate for us as followers of Jesus to do during this season. But insofar as Advent starts in the dark, praise God, it doesn't end in the dark. In fact, I was reading again this week that there's this interesting uh, reality that <clears throat> Christmas happens to land right around that time where we've, we've now gone through the shortest days of the year with the longest darkness, and now we're regaining light. And that seems intentional, if not intentional, at least appropriate, that now you might notice the days are getting a little bit longer. Advent starts in the dark, but praise God, it doesn't end in the dark. And so as I was even reflecting on the fact that we've been so wonderfully led by Isaiah through this Advent season. I couldn't help but end our time in Advent with the text that Caleb just read for us. Because, precisely because, the whole point of Advent is to eventually get to Christmas and to get to the dawning of the marvelous light that does come in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the answer to all of that suffering. Jesus is the answer to all of that darkness, that grief, that loss, that pain. Whatever, whatever heaviness we bring to him, Jesus is capable, more than capable, of bearing. And so that's, that's what we want to get to. And so rather than just doing that for one Sunday on Christmas Eve, I felt like it was appropriate. And in fact, in, in church history, again, um, we don't come from a, from a you know, uh, 
centuries-long denomination or something that, that would have this as a part of its rhythm. But actually in church history, this season, I don't know if you know this, but the season um, between Christmas and actually January 6th, does anybody know what that's called? Yeah, it's epiphany. And that word epiphany literally means the, like the unveiling of light. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's, the, it's the dawning of light. And so the church doesn't just end uh, again, especially churches that have more of a tradition of the church calendar, don't just end on Christmas and say, yay, it's good, and then sort of move on. But they actually pause for the 12 days after Christmas. That's where the 12 days of Christmas come from. It's not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. It's 12 days following Christmas. See all this trivia you're getting? Um, It's the 12 days after Christmas to actually pause and consider all of the goodness and the grace and the gifts that come with the coming of Jesus into the world. And the way that Isaiah talks about that, and then what we'll see is the way that the New Testament writers pick up on that is particularly focusing in on this metaphor of light, of darkness that invades the light. And so if you'll show Isaiah 60, Tim, just a quick reminder, Isaiah is a prophet speaking uh, 500 years before the events of Jesus' life, which is just extraordinary given some of the things that we've been seeing here. And this, uh, what we'll see is once again, Isaiah is talking about God's great intervention in human history, both that we understand as the coming of Christ, but then also zooming way out to the second coming of Christ and the end of all things. And so there's a little bit of both here, and we'll see that as we go through. Isaiah 60 begins so appropriately, given everything I just said, with arise, shine, for your light has come. Light has come. And again, Isaiah is speaking 500 years before the events of Jesus' life. He's speaking in what's known as the prophetic present, which is This is as good as happened to Isaiah, even though it's 500 years in the future for him. For us, of course, we are looking back at the dawning of this light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you given that we just went through Christmas. I mean, just think of the stories. Whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, you probably know some of the stories that surround the birth of Jesus. The dawning of the angels and the light that surrounds them and the announcement of good news that will be for all people. These things that we sing about in Christmas carols. It's like here they are 500 years in advance. That day is coming, that day is coming, that day is coming, Isaiah is saying. What this ultimately points to is that the only thing that can truly enter into the darkness and do something about it is something so utterly outside of that darkness. We ourselves are complicit in the darkness around us, and yet so often we think we can be the ones to get ourselves out of that darkness. We think that things in this world, that enough material goods, that enough success, that enough fill in the blank, almost inevitably, something that's of this world, of the darkness, can somehow lead us out of it. What we need is something from outside of that darkness to come in, 
something of a different substance, something of a completely different nature to come in and to provide a way forward for us. And so should we be surprised that when Jesus comes, one of the things he's at pains to say is, I am that light. In fact, maybe most famously, Tim, go ahead and put this up in John chapter eight, at one of the great festivals of God's people. This is precisely a time where God's people, the Jewish people are remembering God's deliverance of them out of, if you will, the darkness and slavery of Egypt um, by, by the way, a pillar of light, right? That leads them out of that slavery. They're once again remembering that this is a, a high holy day for them. Jesus is watching the events where, where uh, we're told that what the people would do at this time is that part of this celebration is that they would take little, little candles, little torches, and walk through the city as a city of Jerusalem as a reminder of God's deliverance of them, this sort of parade of lights. And right in the midst of all of that ceremony, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light that we so long for. He could not have been clearer <laughs> about it. This is a pretty blatant statement about him saying, there is no other light in the world except me. I am the light. I am not one of the lights. I am not a way forward. I am not a lifestyle choice. I am not one among many different religions that can get you there. I am the light of the whole world. One of the things that you, you hopefully heard, and we're not going to go through every, if you're nervous, like, whoa, we're not even through verse one here. We're not going to go through every verse of, of Isaiah 60, but hopefully you heard as Caleb was reading that the, the whole point of Isaiah 60 is that when the light comes, the light will not just be for God's people only. It will be a light for, for all of the nations. In fact, the nations will come streaming toward that light. This is one of the things that, that Isaiah says again and again, that, that truly the scholars of that day would sort of wrestle. What could that possibly mean? That the nations who have been our oppressors, who have been the ones carrying us into captivity again and again, that they'll somehow stream to Jerusalem when this light dawns and that the light will be for them as much as it's for us. And again, this is where we can get over familiar with the story and we'll say, well, duh, right? Like that's Jesus. That's the whole story. Remember the three wise men coming from these other nations, these completely different worldviews and coming in order to glorify this light that they have seen, this literal light that they have seen that has brought them to the metaphorical light of the world. I don't know if you heard it, but there's this really cool little Easter egg, as they call them in video game world, I think. Uh, at the end of verse six, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian, Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. That's crazy. Like, let's not get too specific here, right? Like, hold your cards a little bit, Isaiah, but that's wild, right? Like bringing gold and frankincense. 
That's what's being celebrated here. And uh, again, a little more trivia for you. In fact, what Epiphany is specifically meant to celebrate, these 12 days after Christmas, is specifically meant to celebrate the coming of the three wise men. And why we would celebrate the coming of the three wise men is that that's our first inclination in the actual Christmas story itself that what Jesus has come to do is a full fulfillment of everything Isaiah said, that it's not just for God's people in Israel, it's for the entire world. And so again, how appropriate that we would be in a text, Isaiah 60 here, that speaks of the universality of what Jesus has come to do for every tribe, tongue, and nation. As I was thinking this week about what, what does it mean for Jesus to be the light of the world? I wonder, I wonder what, what comes to mind for you. What does it mean to be light? What is that metaphor trying to get at? A couple things came to mind for me as I was thinking through this. One is, right, light provides a way forward. It, it, it illuminates a way forward. I think of uh, most nights, uh, my wife goes to bed before me, and I walk in, and I put on the little light on my Apple Watch, and I sort of creep towards bed, trying not to step on anything, right? Like, that's my daily use of light, is that light has this way of, in the midst of darkness, it provides a way forward. It, it shows you the proper way to go. You know, no clothes in your way. You're not going to trip on any, you know, anything in your way. It's, it's, it's the way, right? It, it illuminates the way. And how true is this of Jesus? That Jesus actually provides a way forward. I wonder how many of you would describe your story that way or in those terms, to not confuse terms here, that at precisely the time in your life where you felt like there wasn't a way forward, where it felt like darkness maybe all around, maybe it felt like darkness within you, and there was just this sense of, I almost feel trapped in the darkness that, that's around me. I, I, I feel trapped by the darkness that's within me. It's like Jesus showed up in your story and said, no, there's a way forward. There's actually a, a, a way to find purpose in life. There's a way to decide what comes next for you. There's, there's a way through the, the worst thing that you've ever done doesn't need to be the end of your story. There's a way to, to actually find redemption in the, in, the, in the broken pieces in the midst of that darkness that surrounds you. There's actually a way forward through this horrible grief and loss that you're working through. It's like light dawns and you go, whoa, wait, there, there's a way. Might not be easy, <laughs> might not be simple, might not be immediate, might not be a, a sprint right away but I know enough of your stories. I know my own story to say that, that there's this resonance with, man, Jesus can collide with, with these moments of darkness in our life and we go, wait, there actually might be a way. We, the light tones and we go, oh, okay, <laughs> that's, that's where I can step. That's where safe, that's where actually forward mo movement might be for me. I also think of light as, uh, maybe this is the first one that comes to mind for you. It's, it's what it's doing to me right now, right? It's, it's revealing. It, 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 it accentuates. It, it shows you what's there. 
And again, these, these ideas are, are overlapping, but light has a way of, um, <laughs> my mother used to have a phrase, did you, get, did you get ready in the dark today? Right? Does anybody know that? Right? Like, um, because sometimes what we think is true in the dark, when we get into the light, we go, ooh, yeah, that, that doesn't actually match. Or, ooh, is that what my face looks like today? Right? Like, um, what I'm getting at here is that light has a way of, of being a, a truth teller, a truth revealer. What's really going on with us? Boom, the light dawns. Now, this is, um, I don't want to say the, the negative side because it's a, it's a gift to be shown who you actually are, but it's the difficult side of encountering Jesus, I think, because Jesus doesn't just say there's a way forward, um, go. He says there's a way forward, but there's also stuff inside of you that we're going to need to deal with as we move forward. You see, an encounter with Jesus is also an encounter with, with who we really are. With, um, in fact, the, the, you hear me say this a bunch if, if you've been at our church for a while, but I hope that this would always characterize us individually and as a community, is that the way into relationship with Jesus is precisely to say who I am is insufficient, who I am is broken, who I am is rebellious, who I am, and this is a word that we've cast off as a culture, but, but who I am is, I'm a sinner. I sin. I do the stuff I don't want to do, and sometimes I do stuff that I do want to do, and that's really ugly, because the stuff I actually want to do is harmful to other people, harmful to me, and yet I find myself doing it. That's the way in. You see, you've got to step into the light in order to be Jesus' own. So Jesus, when he says, I am the light of the world, is also saying, I'm here to show the true condition of the human soul. I'm here to show the true condition of the human heart. I'm even here to show the true condition of human societies. It's that prophetic side of Jesus that comes into all of our stories and tells it like it is. And again, that's, that's a gift, right? Like we don't always want to look in the mirror but mirrors exist for a reason <laughs> because they show us what's really going on with us and allow us to then adjust accordingly. That's part of what it means for Jesus to be the light. He says, I'm the true mirror of your life. When you look into me, you see what's really going on with you. And then most hopefully you can actually see a way forward and see what's necessary to be changed. Because the last thing that light of the world I've thought of this week is that light is also, and you heard it in, in that passage in John 8. Tim, would you put that back up, that John 8? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, right? That's that sort of revealing thing. But then he also says, but we'll have the light of life. Now, this is an association that, particularly in the Gospel of John, which we went through this, this last year, we see light and life constantly being placed together. In fact, in the, in the opening, what's called the prologue of the Gospel of John, sort of John's intro to this biography of the life of Jesus, he's constantly toying with the, with the association between Jesus as light and Jesus as the source of life. And of course, this works on an actual literal level. 
Uh, this week, I gave myself a little uh, um, brush up on photosynthesis. <laughs> you know how photosynthesis works? Neither do I, but I looked it up. So, so right, photosynthesis is this fascinating thing where plants, I'm totally going to get this wrong, but plants take in, I think it's light and carbon dioxide, and, and somehow those two things combine with this thing called chlorophyll, which only makes me think chlorophyll, more like borophyll, but, um, but that's for me to work through, um, combines with this thing called chlorophyll, creates something that the plant needs, and then ultimately gives off oxygen so that we can breathe. How does, right? Is that right? Do I have that right, more or less? Why are you laughing at me, Rachel? What? Oh, it creates food for the plant. Thank you, my child. Thank you. Um, but, but, like, what? Isn't that crazy? It's like plants need sun to have life. Why? That's why, like, it's as mysterious as, as anything. It's wild, right? It's wild. When you really get to the nuts and bolts of biology, the things that organic life needs are sort of mysterious. There's a mystery there. There's a magic there. there there's something of, well, the light does this, does this, does this. And, and I think to say I'm the light of the world is also for Jesus to say, look, without me, you don't live. Without me, there's no real, actual spiritual life. Right, because I think, I think the one thing that I wouldn't want you to walk away from Advent from, or even like this individual teaching, is with a sense that Jesus is the light of the world, one among many, he's a really good one, a really optimal one, and um, he'll help make your life better. He'll, he'll light your way, he'll show you who you really are, it's sort of the, an upgrade package on existence. No, no, no. This final one is the most crucial one. Without him, there is only spiritual death. With him, there is the potential and possibility, amazingly, of actual spiritual life. That you can come alive to what you were actually created for. You see, this is no small claim. When Jesus shouts this out in the middle of probably tens of thousands of people it understandably causes a stir because he's making a claim that literally no one else could make and that only makes sense if he himself is from outside of this whole system, right? Like the, the plant itself can't make its own light. We are plants constantly trying to create our own life. Constantly trying to awaken our own chlorophyll, if you will, by saying, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this next thing, maybe it's, it's this achievement, maybe it's this relationship, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, and we're groping around in the dark going, maybe the light will be here. And then we have Jesus who comes and says, I am the light of the world coming in from the outside, but coming among us so that light is actually operating where we need it most, which is right here in the midst of our actual lives. That's the claim he's making. I am the light of the world. I give life. Now, how he gives life is the most stunning thing of all. Is he doesn't give light. He doesn't give 
life passively like the sun by simply shining, right? What it actually, this is where the metaphor breaks down. Because what it actually requires from Jesus to give us the life we need is to take upon himself all of the darkness around us and most importantly within us onto himself and somehow conquering that, overcoming that with the light that he is, with the superior thing that he is to the worst that we can throw at him. This is why John starts his gospel by saying, Jesus came into the darkness and the darkness, what? Has not overcome it, the light, him, who he is. You see, this is the message of the gospel, the good news, is that the only way for the darkness around us to be dealt with, right, is unfortunately, it's not just some spiritual flashlight that gets to pop up, right? This is where the metaphor breaks down. What it actually requires is nothing less than the death and destruction and punishment and wrath that we all deserve because of our complicity in it. And somehow God says, I'm going to take all of that darkness upon myself such that, do you notice what happens when Jesus is on the cross? When the light of the world dies, you know what happens? It's three o'clock in the afternoon and the entire creation goes dark. It's one of the weirdest things that said to the point where the governing authorities go like, hey, what's happening? Why, why, is it, why is it suddenly dark outside? It's three o'clock. The sun should be blazing. And this is where I wonder if God for just one moment says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend the metaphor <laughs> a little bit because I have the power to. Because light has just been seemingly overcome by the darkness. This is what happens on the cross. We rightly hold our breath. Because if Jesus' destination is the same as our destination, then we are without hope. If the light of the world can be snuffed out by the very same darkness that threatens to snuff all of us out, we are without hope. And yet, three days later, on, oh, by the way, a morning when the literal light of the sun is just rising. Jesus' closest companions go to the place where they have laid his body overcome by darkness. And what do they find? They find it like half a dozen different descriptions of light. They find angels whose clothes are, remember that part? <laughs> whose clothes are like a blazing white fire. They're grasping at words to try and describe how much light they encounter at the empty grave because the darkness has not overcome it. And again, it's like God is extending the metaphor saying, no, now there is light, actual light in the world. This is the good news of this passage. Check out what happens in verse three. And yes, we're only on verse three. And the nations, <laughs> it says, and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Who's the your there? We would think God, given everything that I just said, but listen as it goes on. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. And as we read on, it becomes more and more abundantly clear 
that this is talking about us. This is talking about the people of God. That it's as though the light that dawns somehow is transferred to us such that we become the radiant ones. Which is crazy. And yet, it only sounds crazy and borderline heretical until we remember that Jesus himself said some crazy, wild stuff in this vein, right? <laughs> this, is, this is his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Matthew 5 passage, Tim. And this is the metaphor that Jesus chooses. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it on under, under a desk, but on a stand that gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, while, who's the light of the world? In a sense, the right answer is Jesus. It's always, right? That's always the right answer. You're in church, for goodness sake. But the edgier one is, is we are. First of all, what I like about this is he goes from saying that you are the light of the world and immediately uses a collective image, a city set on a hill. So I think we need to be careful with this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine all alone, isolated, just me. This task is mine alone. I'm the light of the world. No, no, no. A city, he goes to this collective image to say that there's a sense in which we together are the light of the world. I don't think that any of us carry this alone. But nonetheless, it is, it is us that's being spoken of here. People don't light a lamp, put it under a basket, um, but on a stand, right? Hide it under a... I always thought it was a bush. Oh, no. Because it's like, no, no. You don't put a... It's going to burn the bush. A forest fire. It's a bushel. No. Hide it under a bushel. No. There you go. See what you're learning, Rachel? Thank you for that. But on a stand, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Now check this out, right? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two, two very simple observations here. One, if we are the light of the world, this means our faith has to be visible. It's, that's just irreducibly what he's saying here. There is a need for our faith, for our commitment, for our relationship, for our being united to Christ to be visible to others. And we will spend much of 2024 talking about what that might look like in each of our lives. What does it mean to be visible? What does it mean also to embrace the fact that th that visibility is to be a collective project and not just this individual, I've got to go be a witness all by myself. I've got to convert people or whatever, right? Like, what does it mean for this task to be shared? But what does it mean for each of us to be visible such that our community is a visible one, such that under a bushel, no, right? Like, that's what this is saying. If you are the light of the world, number one, you've got to be visible. Also notice here, though, that we've got to be visible in a way that brings glory to God. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? I think that, I think that people are really turned off by Christians whose faith is visible in a way that's meant to bring glory to themselves. 
The world can sniff that pretty quickly. It doesn't smell very good. But we're to be visible in a way that actually glorifies God, that makes God look beautiful is what that's saying, that make people go, oh, I want what you've got. Let's go back to those three things. I don't know if you heard it in there, but when I was talking about what it means for Jesus to be the light, I said he's, he provides a way forward. There, there's, a, there's a revealing of truth that he gives, and then he gives life. Do you know what I'm doing there? I'm just, I'm just riffing off of his own statement, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember he said that, for those of you who've been around the Bible a little bit, right? He says that in that same gospel, the way, the truth, and the life, right? All of this stuff, I think, is, is sort of entangled together. Are there corollaries for, like, is there overlap there for us being the light? And I would say yes. I would say that we, by our lives, should show people that there is a way forward in this world. That by our example, people go, man, you live with more joy, you live with more vulnerability, you live with more forgiveness than anything that I've ever been a part of. I, I think that some of the stuff that we do in discipleship course brought into the actual world, I think we can underestimate how funky that stuff is in the world. Like bring to your workplace the actual ability to admit wrong, to seek reconciliation, to name what you've done wrong, seek forgiveness. And people will go, um, what? Because you know what that feels like? That feels like a light in the dark. It feels like, yo, what is that? That feels like an actual way forward. Like if I did that, yeah, my workplace would be dead. If my family did that, man, that feels like an actual way forward through some of the complexity and the stuff that we just tend to shut off as people. We show people a way forward, right? We do bring truth, right? This is the difficult part is we are to be those who say there is a mirror in the world, right? Like, Largely what our culture wants to say is like, no, I, I just by whatever, by the way I feel, by my own desires, I get to decide what's real and what's true. And we say, no, there is actually a mirror that we can look into. But here's the thing. That mirror is also the way forward and the one who gives life. So it's good news to look into that mirror. I've looked into that mirror and I've had to see my true self. You see, we don't, we don't slam people over the head with truth without first saying, Look, I had to wrestle with this truth and it's really hard and it's met me and, and caused me to get down on my knees sometimes. And, and yes, yeah, some, some of it messes with my own instincts and my own sense of what I wish God was about. But, but if he's God, then, then there are going to be ways that we disagree or else it's probably just a God in my own image if I never disagree with him. And so I've, I've had to come under that, but, but there is truth. And then ultimately what we do is that we offer life. You see, sometimes I think that we just think, oh, if, I was a, if I was a Christian whose faith was visible, I'd just get in more arguments with people who disagree with me. And I'd be courageous, right? Because I'd bring my perspective. And I think that that's when we lose the whole thing, is when we think, well, I'm bringing one among many perspectives, right? If what we actually have to offer is life, and these things are life and death, I just think we approach them differently. We approach them with grace and with kindness and with a sense of, of shared need for, for an actual hope of life in the midst of the darkness, right? You don't shine a light in people's face and go, this is the way forward, right? You go, hey, hey, like, 
I got a light. This, I, this is the way forward. Come with me, right? And so we're going to talk a lot about this in 2024. This is going to be a huge focus for us, right? We're not very good at this as church. You want some truth? That's just the reality. We want more people sitting here a year from now who wanted nothing to do with God because we made our faith visible. Now, there's a, there's a right way to do that and there's a wrong way to do that. Um, there's best ways to do that. There's better ways to do that. There's good ways to do that. There's acceptable ways to do that. We're going to go through all that. <laughs> and we're going to get it wrong like we do in all the other areas that, that we work through as a church. We're not going to do this perfect right out of the gate. We're going to make, make mistakes. But ultimately, we're going to seek to do it in a way that actually brings glory to God. And not to us. And not to say, hmm, we did it. You know, 2024. Um, no, we just want more people to see how beautiful God is. And so that's, that's the task that now stands in front of us. We're now going to skip all the way to the end of this passage. Exhale. Verse 19 says this. Now this is talking about the part of the story that we haven't experienced yet. The dawning of that light, the coming of Jesus as the light of the world has happened. This is the part that we long for. Check this out. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day, or the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor your brightness nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time, I will hasten it. The light has dawned. The light has come into the world. But there is a day coming when that light will not fade. When that light will not be opposed by any darkness. And that light will simply characterize every minute, every moment, every breath of our existence. He describes it as this. He says, uh, the Lord will be your everlasting light. This is the end of verse 20. And your days of mourning shall be ended. If you've been with us long enough, you've, you've heard in Revelation 21 and 22, the, the, the image picks up on exactly what's said here in Isaiah 60. That no more shall there be a sun, for, for, the, for the, the lamb shall be its lamp. Um, it's picking up on this imagery. It's saying that the dawning of that light is only partial now. Because there's still darkness. There's still darkness around us. There's still darkness within us. When that day comes, it shall be day forever. Now, I don't think that this is literal, like there's never any, you know, any night and we're just in sort of blazing sun. I don't know. It seems like all this is metaphor. But what's the metaphor trying to get us to see? What it's saying is there shall be no more mourning. In other words, somehow all of the suffering of darkness, all of the darkness uh, of loss, all of the darkness of grief, all of the darkness of pain, all of the darkness of anything that you've physically been through will be completely undone and rolled back on that day. The light will be so uninhibited by any of that stuff that it won't just be that that stuff is over, but somehow that stuff is rolled back and healed. Anybody long for that day, <laughs> right? All of it undone. Everything sad, untrue, as Tolkien put it. Everything sad is becoming untrue. 
He says, your people shall all be righteous. You know what that means? No darkness within us anymore. That light will penetrate to every corner. No more alleyways of temptation. No more dark corners of hidden sin. No more of, of, of the shadows of the sin that's been done to us. Fully righteous, fully cleansed, fully clean, fully pervaded by that very light that right now gets in and gets pushed against constantly. You know what that's like, follower of Jesus? Yeah, the light of Jesus. We hear a sermon, we listen to a worship song, and it's getting in, it's getting in, it's getting in, and then there's stuff that pushes back against us. Right? You know that feeling? The light is getting in, the light is getting in, and then the dark shadows in the corners and the stuff that we don't want to actually repent of and be known by and, and the stuff that we've never revealed to, and it, it all gets covered again. There'll one day be a day where that light gets all the way in and all of that stuff will be expelled once and for all. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. You know what that's saying? It's saying even creation itself will function perfectly how God intended it to. No more natural disasters, no more disease, no more of any of the things that constantly assault our experience and make us say this is not the way it's supposed to be. And God says a hearty amen to that heart cry. And he says, but it will not always be the way that it is. It will one day be exactly how I intended it. I am the Lord in its time. I will hasten it. He says, because I'm making this promise, it's as good as done. And then the one who took this promise, not only upon his lips, but upon his life, Jesus Christ comes, becomes that light of the world against all expectations by embracing all of the darkness of this world and then rises victorious over all of it and says, I am the Lord. And in my time, I've, I've hastened that day. So now we look back, not just at a promise from the lips of God, but we look back at the very broken yet resurrected body of Jesus. And we say all of these promises of light's eternal full dawning are as good as done because of the one who's making them. Advent begins in the dark, but praise God, it doesn't end in the dark. It ends with the dawning of light, now partially, one day fully. And so even as we celebrate that we're no longer waiting for the coming of Jesus, we still wait for that day, which is why we always say that there's really three advents, the coming of Jesus into the world, his second coming at the end, and the way that he comes to us now to help us through the partial dawning of that light. I want to do one more thing, but would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this promise. Thank you for this reality. Thank you, Lord, that light has come into the world and that you are the light of the world. I pray that we would embrace that light um, as we head into a new year, Lord. I pray that there would be, um, yeah, the, the alleyways and corners and shadows of our hearts and lives and souls and stories. God, that we would hand more over to the dawning of that light. Because we know that there's healing there. We know that there's life, real life there. And so God, I pray that you would even start that work.
here today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.